proclaim it. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So when you were kids, do you, do you guys ever remember playing those games with like a loop of string? Yes? You know what I'm talking about where you'd like thread them between your fingers? I totally looked this up on YouTube this week. Um, but you know, you'd thread them between your fingers and you'd do different interesting things and you'd end up making some cool pattern, right? The thing that's interesting about those games that you would play with string is that they really, to work, rely on tension, right? That is, you pull with your fingers, and you create this tension, right? And that makes this awesome pattern. However, if you don't have the tension, that's not very impressive, right? Somehow, by being pulled in both directions at once, you actually make something cool. One of the reasons that I think it's hard to be a follower of Jesus sometimes is that often his commands come to us in that kind of way as tensions, That he tells us two things that seem to be at odds with each other, and that righteousness somehow exists between them. Have you ever felt that tension? You know, God is holy and gracious. We are to be bold and gentle, wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. Those truths, as scripture proclaims them to us, seem to pull us in two different directions. And that's actually the point, that somehow by being pulled in both of those ways at the same time, the pattern of righteousness begins to emerge. Obedience lies in that tension often, and perhaps none of those tensions is harder for us than that between truth and love, the tension between truth and love. So on the one hand, there are those in this world who are all about truth, right, without love. I remember a movie that came out years ago, um, Saved, it was called, and I know I recommend it. I saw it like a decade ago, but I do remember um, this scene. It's this movie about this group of kids at a Christian high school, and the one girl's kind of struggling, and so some of the, the popular girls decide to stage an intervention, and after that intervention goes badly, and the girl is crying and walking away, the leader of the popular girls hurls a Bible at her and screams, I am filled with the love of Christ. And of course, we recognize that she somehow missed the point. But at the same time, it's also easy in the name of love to compromise the truths that are foundational to the Christian message. So some people want to make Christianity loving by getting rid of all the hard bits. But you can't understand Christianity without making claims about any number of things. Claims about the world and about morality and what human beings were made for. And like any other way of viewing the world, people are going to disagree about those kinds of statements. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, The things that we are to hold as a first importance are that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And those are by nature divisive claims. Whether you believe them or not is going to make a difference. So living in that tension between truth and love is difficult. We often veer in one direction or the other. In fact, given our our sinful states, oftentimes we veer from one error into the other. Martin Luther, in what is a quintessentially Martin Luther image, pictures us in trying to follow Jesus like drunk peasants trying to get onto a horse, where we start on one side and then we try to jump on and topple off the other side and then try to jump on and topple back into the first side. Often in trying to live in the tensions of obedience, we feel like that. And this morning, Jesus poses us this exact tension, that between truth and love. In one breath, he tells us not to judge, 
And in the next, he seems to call on us to pass judgment. It's tough for us to sort out. And so here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to to consider how Jesus in this passage frames this tension. On the one hand, he teaches us we are not to be judgmental. We're not to be judgmental. On the other hand, he teaches us we are to be discerning. We are to be discerning. So I want us to spend some time digging into each side of that tension and reflecting on how we can live into both of those callings at once. So first, Jesus tells us we are not to be judgmental. We're not to be judgmental. I think judgmental is probably the best way to render his words here in verse 1. We hear the command, do not judge, and that can mean a lot of different things, right? People sometimes throw it around as if it's self-evident, but there's some kinds of judgment that Jesus isn't condemning. In the first place, I have a friend, for example, back in Lincoln who was a federal judge, and there would be no grounds, right, for an inmate um, after being convicted of a crime to stand up in his courtroom and quote Matthew 7, 1 to him as grounds for why he ought not um, face justice, right? And on a deeper level, too, um, don't judge can't mean don't disagree, although sometimes people use it that way. That's impossible. I mean, Scripture actually calls us to judge truth and falsehood. Um, so, for example, 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And by spirits, he means different teachings about Jesus. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone into the world. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul actually condemns the Corinthians for not judging evil to be evil in their midst, and ultimately asks them, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So do not judge does not mean that we won't find things in the world that we think are correct and things that we think are incorrect. But there is something that Jesus is warning us against. And I think the best way to put that is being judgmental. There are sorts of judgment that we as Christians will make, that every human being ends up making, but that judgmentalism is always wrong. So what's the difference, all right? What makes judgmentalism judgmental? I think Jesus gives us two qualifications. First, judgmentalism is hypocritical. It's hypocritical. Jesus uses this picture in verses 3 to 5 of a guy. And the guy comes up to you and he says, Brother, you aren't seeing clearly. You've got this speck of dirt in your eye. Let, re- let me remove it for you. And you look at him and there's a two-by-four sticking out of his eye, Right? Jesus is saying, when you look at that guy, you're going to think, yeah, right. Who are you to worry about a speck? So Jesus is condemning people who judge others when they're doing the same thing. We all know the obvious cases of this, right? The politicians who champion the war on drugs while secretly doing drugs themselves. The the preachers who loudly decry sexual immorality while living sordid personal lives. The kinds of stories that newspapers love to pick up and splash across the front page. But hypocrisy isn't always that obvious. It can involve condemning someone for do, and doing the exact same thing, but it can also involve picking and choosing between sins, seeing some as worse than others, usually seeing the ones that people, other people commit as worse than the ones that you commit. This is something Jesus regularly attacks the Pharisees for. He says um, that they're exacting in some areas of the law, Things like tithing 
or observing the ceremonial cleanliness laws, but at the same time, he says they neglect the poor, and they, um, they hate people different than themselves. So Jesus is saying you can't pick and choose when it comes to righteousness. Sin is sin, and so hypocrisy also includes, for instance, those who would say a lot about certain sorts of sins in the church while ignoring gossip or greed or the other sort of respectable sins that characterize our lives. But that also is hypocrisy and the kind of judgmental spirit that Jesus is condemning. So judgmentalism is hypocrisy. Judgmentalism is also graceless. It is graceless. So in verse 2, Jesus says, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. With the measure you use, which is to say, if you judge others more harshly than you judge yourself, then you're being judgmental. One of the universal realities of being human is that we tend to be a lot more gracious with ourselves than with others, right? When I'm at the grocery store and my kids are screaming and pulling things off of the shelves, it's because they're just having a really rough day. But when somebody else's kids are doing the exact same thing, it's because they're a terrible parent. We have all felt that in our hearts. We need... So when I sin, right, I say nobody's perfect, but when somebody else sins, I say, and they definitely aren't. We need to extend the same grace that we extend ourselves to others. That when we see others struggling with sin, to seek to be as gracious and generous with them as we are with our own struggles. Maybe even more. So that's one side of Jesus' command here. To not be judgmental. So how do we know when we're sliding towards that temptation? How do we actually see that spirit in ourselves? Well, let me offer three questions that I think help me at least recognize when this is happening in my heart. Okay? Three questions. One, am I deeply aware of my own sin when I'm in a moment where I'm judging something? Am I deeply aware of my own sin? There should be a real sense of fear and trembling that I feel when I challenge somebody. It should be done cautiously and only after I've developed an intimate knowledge of my own weakness. To fail to ask this question is to put us in danger of what Jesus is warning us against here, of ignoring the plank that's in my eye because of the speck in my brother's. Very practically, that means that the more I want to correct somebody, the less I probably should. That if challenging somebody is easy and feels like it's vindicating me, then I probably haven't properly spent time reflecting on my own sin and weakness as I challenge them. That's why I'm so suspicious of, some, of the partisan spirit that often crops up in our world. That we spend so much time listening to people talk about how those we disagree with are sinful and stupid and evil, and it makes us feel so good about ourselves, when in reality, we may well be living in a world where people are simply championing the evil of the other person's speck while ignoring our plank. If you are enjoying correction... Jesus would tell you that you almost certainly aren't correcting in a biblical way. Instead, you're just puffing yourself up. Second diagnostic question is this. How do I respond when someone I correct repents or when I find out that I'm mistaken? How do I respond to repentance or to being mistaken? Here's something I've noticed in my heart. Sometimes I take issue with a person and I find out that I'm being wrong or unfair. You know how that makes me feel? 
disappointed. <laughs> I wanted them to be wrong. I wanted them to continue being wrong because somehow that made me feel good about myself. And so I actually feel disappointed when they say, you're right, I really do need to work on that. Or I'm sorry, but this is what was actually going on. I don't know if you've encountered it ever in the dark corners of the internet, but there's this world of Christian discernment blogs. Have you ever seen these that are essentially these long collections of screeds against all of the popular teachers and leaders of Christianity, calling them out for various supposed heresies and, and, and wrong things that they've done? And often, um, when these accusations get thrown, there's this interesting thing that happens. If they get enough traction, right? I think most people wisely just ignore those blogs. But when they get enough traction, the leader might come and say, no, I didn't mean that. Here's what I meant, and try to explain himself. Or he might say, yeah, I didn't say that well. Here's how I should have said it. Or maybe even, you're right, I was wrong about that. I'm sorry. Here's what's right. But the thing you notice is that when those things happen, never once... On those Christian discernment blogs, is that enough? The person writing them insists that there must be some new error or that the repentance isn't genuine because their whole meaning of existence rests on these people being wrong. And we can do that same thing with people that we know. They can be a minor thing, it seems. We dislike a coworker because of something they said. And then we find out that they didn't mean to say it like that, or that one of their kids was in the hospital last night and they've got stuff going on. But we don't say, oh, wow, I was really wrong about that. We say, well, maybe they had a reason this time. But still, so biblical correction should always be done with the hope that we are mistaken, and it should be done with rejoicing when there is repentance. And if we don't feel those things, we're probably following into that judgmental spirit as well. And then three... The third question to recognize judgmentalism is this. Is my manner of correction in keeping with Jesus? Is my manner of correction in keeping with Jesus? We say it to our kids all the time, right? It's not what you say, it's how you say it. But we often, as grown-ups, are very bad about actually following that rule for ourselves. Paul famously lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The signs, he says, that the Holy Spirit is working in us, and they are love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what's striking about that list is that it says almost nothing about what we do and almost everything about how we do it. Are we being joyful in others' repentance? Are we being patient with people as they struggle to change? Are we being kind to them and gentle? If not... And it doesn't matter whether what we're saying is true or not to that person, we are failing to actually be Christian in that correction. Perhaps the best concrete advice, for me at least on this point, is this. Never ever seek to speak truth or challenge someone when you're ticked off. Just don't do it. It's not that anger is always a wrong response. But if we're in the middle of it, we will almost always respond wrongly. If you're ticked off, No matter how right you feel in the moment, keep silent. Or as James puts it in James 1, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we're not to be judgmental, Jesus says, and that's important. 
the same time, after verse 5, comes verse 6, which I guess you know if you can count. But, <laughs> but Jesus just got done with this image of planks and eyes that we love to quote. And then in the next breath, he says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. And we can kind of be like, where did that come from? And hurry on to verse 7. So what do we make of this verse? So first, let's just spend a little time probing at it, okay? First, to clarify something about the images. Jesus talks about dogs and pigs, and he is talking about certain kinds of people, right? He's not giving agricultural advice when he says this. Um, And he is saying something that's not particularly nice about them, but it's maybe not what we think. We hear it, and it sounds like Jesus is saying that these people are somehow dirty, right? That's what we would think of when we call someone a dog or a pig, that we have an image of an animal that smells funny and sniffs its rear end when we think about dogs, right? We think about pigs wallowing in the mud. But that's not what dogs or pigs were like in Jesus' day, all right? Basically, nobody kept dogs as pets. A few people kept dogs as guard dogs, but those are like Rottweilers and Dobermans. And all of the rest of the dogs were these like feral packs of dogs that you hear about roaming the streets, you know, in, in poorer parts of the world, all right? So when Jesus talks about dog, he's picturing that. Same thing with pigs. While the people occasionally domesticated pigs, nobody did in Israel because they were unclean. And so when he talks about pigs, what he's picturing is wild boars, right? With big tusks that are dangerous. And so Jesus isn't saying that these people are dirty, but he's saying that they're dangerous. And that's why um, he says, he warns that they may tear you to pieces, all right? Which is not something that babe would do if that was your image of a pig. These are wild animals. That's the picture Jesus uses. And then he talks about pearls and sacred things. And it's pretty clear if you pay attention to Jesus' preaching that he means by those things the message of the kingdom and the gospel. In Matthew 13, he's going to use a pearl to picture the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying that there are people, so said against him, that his disciples ought to simply avoid them because they won't appreciate the goodness of the gospel and might instead try to tear them apart. So that's the picture Jesus uses. And even with that level of explanation, it's kind of hard to know what to do with it. So what do we make of that? Well, first, in this specific instance, I think Jesus has something particular in mind. In Matthew 10, he sends out his disciples to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And in verse 14, he says that if they come to a town and that town rejects them and rejects the good news, they're to shake the dust off their sandals and leave. Or in Acts 18.5, Paul's ministering to the Jews in Corinth, and they become hostile to him in his ministry. And so he says, all right, then I'm done. I'm going to go minister to the Gentiles instead. So Jesus is saying there comes a point where you're going to part ways with some people in the world. And don't expect everyone to hear the good news of Jesus and take it as good news. And there are those who will instead turn on you for bringing it to them. So that's what Jesus is saying. And I'll be honest, that strikes me as a hard application But maybe for some of you it's helpful, so let's leave it out there. It is worth bearing in mind, if it's hard, that that single verse does not overrule all of the calls to love our enemies and be kind to them, nor should it probably... It's instructive, right, that Jesus spends five verses talking about judgmentalism and then one giving this warning. But all of that said, I do think that this passage reminds us of a general truth that Jesus teaches, and that's that it reminds us that while we are not to be judgmental... We are to be discerning as Christians. 
We are to be discerning. We're called to seek and proclaim the truth, even if we know that people are going to disagree with us about it. That gets back to what we said earlier about how do not judge for Jesus can't mean judging certain things as true and false. Just a few verses later in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll look at in two weeks, Jesus, starting in verse 15, starts warning about true and false prophets and how we must judge between their teachings. Even verse 5 seems to picture an appropriate sort of judging. Jesus condemns those who would hypocritically judge, right? But then he doesn't say, therefore just chill out, bro. Instead, he says, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we are called to speak truth and challenge people with it, just in ways that don't ignore our own sin or make light of the gospel. One of the hot topics in our world is that of tolerance, and we're called to be tolerant of others. And intolerance is increasingly becoming one of the nastiest things that you can call somebody. And in many ways, that call to tolerance is something that we in Christians should embrace. We don't believe that people can be forced or coerced into believing things. And even more, we should believe that they have dignity and worth as image bearers of God. In fact, Christians are supposed to go beyond tolerance, right? We're called to love people. And before I say anything critical of the modern idea of tolerance, it's also worth noting that part of why it's gained some traction in ways that are hard for Christians is because we have failed in that calling to love people. The church has often taken the lead in shaming and alienating those we disagree with. We're still obsessed with seizing the reins of power and have often been loveless and cruel. And if the modern discussion of tolerance has turned against us, part of that is something that we need to probably bear the blame of and repent of. That said... There is increasingly a problem with the way that people in our world talk about tolerance. And here's what it is. Historically, that word described how a person acted. All right? You acted tolerant. It meant that you did certain things. You respected people and extended them rights and protections. And it meant you didn't do other things, insult or demean or bully them for disagreeing with you. Increasingly, though, that word's meaning is starting to shift. And it doesn't describe actions but it describes beliefs. If you believe that something is wrong, at least in certain areas, that that makes you somehow intolerant. And look, in the first place, that way of thinking doesn't really make sense. It leads to people talking about things like being intolerant of intolerance, which when you think about it for a minute or two, gets a little bit sketchy. But more than that, it's often an ex- it often excuses intolerant actions in the name of tolerance. There's this whole new breed of insulting and demeaning and bullying that can go on for those who don't hold the kind of approved views. And there are areas, as all of us are aware, that this shift in the definition of tolerance affects us as Christians, that there are certain things that we believe about the world, about Christ, about morality, that are going to be labeled um, as intolerant. So what do we do with that? Well, first, we need to make sure that we aren't actually being intolerant in the right definition of the word. When people call you bigots, the first question you should ask is, well, am I being a bigot, right? Like we said, some part of that shift is because we've made ourselves easy targets for it. I remember, um, and I'm not that old, in the 80s and 90s, when many evangelical Christians were having a live discussion about whether we should try to cure or treat AIDS because maybe it was just God's judgment on those people. And that is despicable, right? 
That is not the sort of attitude that we should have. And I say that first because I don't want what I'm about to say to serve as an excuse for sin, for being that way. That if you're going to follow Jesus, it means we are going to have to part ways with this faulty definition of tolerance. But that doesn't mean that we can part ways with the right definition. That said, being a Christian means being committed to a certain set of beliefs about this world. It is by its very nature an exclusive claim. If we claim that God is our authority, that means we will be put in conflict with other authorities. When Jesus comes and announces the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, that's seen rightly as a threatening thing to the kingdoms of this world. When he tells us to seek first that kingdom instead of earthly things, it means that we're going to have to renounce things in this world in order to follow him. And part of that price is probably going to be renouncing some of the respect that we would like to have. I mean, think about how people listening to the Sermon on the Mount would have been looking at Jesus. He's not, this talk is not the sort of respectable, good, tame talk that everyone's going to smile and nod along to. He would have been seen as strange and crazy. In fact, he was. He was seen as a firebrand and a revolutionary. They found the kingdom that he proclaimed so intolerable that they killed him to try to shut him up about it. All of which is to say... One of the things that has been toxic to Christianity in Europe and America is this idea that we can follow Jesus and still basically be cool with the world. That, um, that we can be respected and appreciated in every way. We live in a place where for centuries Christianity was watered down so that it wouldn't offend anybody's sensibilities. And that is changing in how the world views it. But I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Because that watered-down, respectable kind of Christianity wasn't really the thing Jesus was calling people to to begin with. Following Jesus in this world, really following him, is going to be costly. And people will probably think that you're kind of weird if you do it. Maybe even crazy. That should be our expectation going in. And again, that does not call us from that first call to be loving and kind and gentle to people. But it does mean that we are people under authority, God's authority, And that we need to seek to grow in obedience to what he commands in our lives. And we're going to have to seek to bear witness to what he commands in the world. And there are lots of people that won't necessarily like that. So that's our calling. To not be judgmental, never hypocritical or graceless, but to be discerning. Bearing witness to the truth and letting the chips fall where they may. Which doesn't actually resolve that tension we stated at the beginning, right? Between truth and love. In some ways, it just reinforces it. But it does remind us of the importance of living into both sides of that at once. And as I reflected on trying to how to just express this, I'm just going to tell a story from my own life, if that's okay. Um, As I reflected on this tension, I was reminded of this place that I grew to love during seminary, all right? I told this story a few months ago in the adult Sunday school class, so those of you that were in there, um, I'm sorry, you're going to have to listen again. But um, so seminary is a good place in a lot of ways, and you learn a lot of good things, but it's also, there's ways that it gets kind of weird when you take, you know, 400 Christians and pack them all together and have them out doing each other in Christianness. It can get kind of strange. And so... um, So I found this coffee shop in downtown St. Louis where I could do all of my studying at. And it was like the anti-seminary. It was this punk rock counter-cultural coffee shop with like giant anarchist slogans spray-painted on the walls. It was 
this proud LGBTQ safe zone. Everyone working there was part of that community. It was, for someone tired of the seminary world, it was like perfect, right? I loved it. I could be sitting there studying some like Greek while a girl at the next table, I remember this clearly, coming down off of a drug high while I was studying on it, you know? And so I was a regular there for years. And I got to know the other regulars and all the folks that worked there. And some of them became friends, and they were great. I really appreciated them. But something would happen over the course of those relationships. Um, I've never been one to front with my religious beliefs or anything, but I don't hide them. And especially when you're reading books for seminary, it gets pretty hard to, to hide the fact that, that you're a Christian. And, um, and there would come a point in almost all of my friendships with those people where they would end up having what I nicknamed the conversation with me. And they'd come and they'd say, so you're a Christian? And I'd be like, yep. And then they'd be like, and you're studying to be a pastor? And I'd be like, yep. And the way they'd put it then is, so what kind of Christian are you? And I knew exactly what they were asking me, which was, do you agree with all of the choices that I'm making in my life? In that moment, there were two things that I tried to communicate. Probably never perfectly. But on the one hand, I'd always start by communicating love, that I thought that they were great and that they were a friend, and I appreciated them, and I'd been around long enough that they knew that that was true and not just empty talk. And I'd usually even say something like, so look, I know we're going to disagree about some of what I will have to say if we have that conversation, and I value our friendship, so we can totally not have that conversation. But that never worked. And um, so then we'd have that conversation about what I think Scripture teaches about life and God and obedience, and I'd be as gentle as I could, and constantly mindful of my own sin. And um, at the same time, though, I had to be clear, right? It's not fair either to God or to that person to be unclear or untruthful. And so um, that would be unloving to them, too. So we'd have that conversation. Maybe half of those friendships survived that conversation. Um, And that broke my heart in some ways when I think about those people. But the ones that did survive, there was suddenly a freedom there. And actually, those were people that I, in many ways, grew much closer to because now we could have these conversations that we weren't able to have before, where we had all of our cards on the table and talk about Jesus more. And I saw a few of them even take steps towards him. And look, I tell that story cautiously, right? I don't want you to hear it and think that I'm some paragon of evangelism in the first place, because I'm really not. Or that I always perfectly balance truth or love, because I definitely don't. But those relationships stand in my mind as pictures of how I think this kind of tension works. You always start with love, with not being judgmental, with the gospel. God starts by moving towards us, right? In promise, in scripture, in the incarnation of Jesus. It is God's love that calls us to repentance. And we shouldn't expect calling others to repentance is going to work any differently. But when the time comes, you tell the truth. You don't stop loving the person in that moment, but you also don't lie or cover it up. You do your best to communicate what God has revealed about himself and his world and why you believe it. You anchor it in the gospel, but the gospel should come to us with a conviction of sin, and it goes out to others off in the same way. And then you let the chips fall where they're going to. Sometimes that creates distance in relationship, and that will break your heart. But you don't judge your witness or your faithfulness by the outcome. You are responsible for being loving and for being honest. And then those people's hearts and actions, that's up to them and to God. 
sometimes you discover the awesome reality that truth and love, when they're joined like that, really do come with a power that neither one of them has on their own. That people can be touched and changed by being loving and honest with them. And that's your hope and what you pray for in those moments and in your life. So that's our calling, to lean into truth and to lean into love. To be like Jesus who comes both preaching this kind of revolutionary message and then dying as a servant to all. Let's seek to model our lives after him. Would you pray with me? God and Father, I pray that you would just be with all of us as we seek to live into obedience. Man, one of the hard things, Jesus, about, about living in those tensions of your commands is that um, I never feel like I've quite nailed it, that I'm never quite doing it all right. But I guess that's kind of the point, right? That you keep us reliant on yourself and pressing ever onward towards obedience to Christ. So I pray that you would be with all of us as we seek to live out your will in this world, loving people deeply and truly, bearing witness to your love. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, let's join together in confessing our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of Amen. I invite the elders who are helping this morning to come forward. As we come to the Lord's table, um, the night that Jesus celebrates this first, um, the first Lord's Supper, he's actually celebrating the feast of Passover that the that ancient Israel observed. And that feast of Passover, in many ways, stood as a kind of central event within the sacrificial system, the system where they would offer up animals to God as signs of his forgiveness and their need for their sins to be covered. And the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice, but it is in many ways a sacrificial meal, like it was the first night that it was celebrated. That is to say that in that that Old Testament law, you would kill the animal and sacrifice it, but then you would sit down and eat some parts of it together with people. And what's striking is the way that that's fundamentally similar and fundamentally different from the Lord's Supper. On the one hand, when Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, his disciples understand that he's saying something revolutionary. That in the same way they believed that they could lay their hands on an animal and confess sins and see it offered up and broken and killed, and that they trusted, therefore, that God somehow was so covering their sins, in that same way, he was saying his disciples could somehow look to him, to his body, broken on the cross to do that. At the same time, though, one of the strictest regulations of all of those sacrifices was that while you ate the animal afterwards, you never 
drank, you never ate the blood. It was always drained of its blood first. And the reason we are told is because the blood is somehow the life of the animal. And so if it was shocking when Jesus says, this is my body broken for you, it was downright scandalous when he then after the supper says, this is my blood, take and drink. Now Jesus is somehow saying that there's something more than simply the covering of sins that's happening, but that somehow actually his life, like we said, they viewed the life as deeply connected with the blood, that his life was now something that we ourselves could take and drink, that somehow his resurrection power would flow into us. So as we come to the table, this is a chance for us to reflect both on God somehow breaking and covering our sins in the sacrifice of Jesus and on the life of Christ flowing into and feeding and nourishing us as we follow after him. Let's give thanks to him as we come to the table. God and Father, I thank you for, being, for, for so loving us that you are willing to yourself come as a human being in your son Jesus Christ to be broken, to be poured out so that we might have forgiveness in life. I pray that you would nourish us now this morning as we come to your table. Amen. A few notes as we come to the table. This table doesn't belong to Kish or to any particular denomination or group of churches. This is Jesus' table where he welcomes us to dine. So if you belong to him, you are welcome at that table. Come and eat. If you don't belong to Jesus, well, we're so glad that you're here with us. Um, we would just ask you to not participate in this one part of our life together, if for no other reason than that it would be of no help to you and would in fact put you in a place of hypocrisy as you acted out something with your hands and your mouth that you don't believe in your heart. But if you do belong to Jesus, this table is for you, and we are invited to come. As I received it, so I deliver it to you, that on the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, and breaking it, he said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. you receive the bread, hold on to it, and we will partake together.
Christ's body broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, after the supper, our Lord took the cup, and after giving thanks, he blessed it and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Likewise, hold the cup and we'll partake together. Blood of Christ, take and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Stand with me now and let's sing his praises. <laughs> 